Hey, it's Melissa here, the host of the Filled with Gold Widow podcast. I've had an amazing time doing this podcast, and I'm so grateful for all of you who have listened and supported me along the way. As you might know, I've been working on a new podcast with my two widow besties, Kim Murray and Jen Zwink, called the Widow Squad Podcast. And I've made the decision to focus all my energy on it. The Widow Squad Podcast is a show that provides a space where widows can come together share stories, and find comfort in knowing they're not alone. It's a show we're really passionate about and hope that you'll give it a listen. If you've enjoyed Filled with Gold, I know you'll love the Widow Squad podcast. It's the same kind of honest, heartfelt, and sometimes funny conversations that you've come to expect from me. But it's also a show that will give you a deeper understanding of what it means to be a widow. So if you're ready for a new podcast, I hope you'll check out the Widow Squad podcast. You can find it on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're not ready to say goodbye to the Filled with Gold Widow podcast, you can always go back and listen to all the old episodes. Whether you're a recent widow or have been on this journey for a while, we're here to support and empower each other. So come join us. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you on the Widow Squad podcast. You're listening to the Filled with Gold Widow podcast the show that puts you in touch with expert resources to support you in moving forward after the death of your spouse and life partner. I'm your host, Melissa Pierce. Let's dig in. Welcome, Jenny Lisk, to the show. Jenny Lisk is a best-selling author and widowed mom who is dedicated to helping widowed parents increase their family's well-being. In her book, Future Widow, Jenny draws on her personal and professional experience to provide a real-life guide for surviving and thriving while raising grieving children. Her show, The Widowed Parent Podcast, draws on over 100 interviews with experts, seasoned widowed parents, and people who lost a parent at at a young age. It brings much-needed resources to widowed parents, helping them feel less lost and alone. So thanks for being on the show, Jenny. I really appreciate it. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here, Melissa. It's great to see you again. You were on my show not so long ago, and that was great to hear all about your story and your book. So um, this is going to be fun. Yeah, let's dive in. So I'm fascinated by how people have met. And so I'd like to ask, like, how did you and um, your husband, Dennis, meet? So, you know, it's a funny question because we kind of grew up in the same orbit, but didn't meet until we were adults post-college. Turns out that he went to, he and I went to like Crosstown high schools um, and we knew some of the same people in common, not, you know, not extensively, but um, we met after college. We were both back in Seattle um, working and I had started a little tiny, very, very tiny company consulting, making websites for people. And this was like 1996. So it was kind of like the dot-com stuff was all starting to get exciting and take off. And, you know, it was exciting time to be around tech. And I um, decided to, you know, I spent hours and hours and hours in Barnes and Noble reading all these great big thick books about how to make websites, HTML, taught myself all these things. And I started making little websites for people. So I went actually to our state's political convention to, um, well, I was, I was a delegate and um, I got bored. So I thought I'd walk around and like their booths and stuff, you know, like passing mm-hmm. out information. And he was working at one of the booths because the company he worked for had a booth at the event. 
And so I stopped by to see, oh, maybe they need a website, right? <laughs> this was back when nobody had websites. So anyway, long story short, fast forward, they're like, oh yeah, we need a website. And I worked with them on creating this. And then after the project was over, he was one of the ones, you know, who was on the project and, and um, we ended up, well, we laugh about it. We used to laugh about it. So our first date with my friend, Heather, I actually, I wanted to ask him out, but I didn't really want to ask him out. So I decided to invite a group of people to go out to a bar or something, dinner or whatever on a Saturday. And the only people who could show up, it turned out, were Dennis and my friend Heather, and nobody else could come. So <laughs> we had we had our first date with Heather. Nice, Heather, the third wheel. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So we used to laugh about that from time to time. Um, but yeah, and then the rest is history. That was ninety six, right. and then we were married in uh, in ninety eight. So yeah, that what is it now? It's twenty twenty one. So that would be twenty three years. We just would have been last month. And. Um... So you and I are both widowed. You have the Widowed Parent uh, podcast and you wrote your book, Future Widows. So if you could like tell um, tell us a little bit about your story with Dennis. Yeah. Gosh, how much time do you have? I think we could. Uh, <laughs> well, we, we can take all day, all day or 20 minutes or whatever, no, however you want to do it. It's I'm all up to you. you. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's good. I'm happy to talk about it as much mm-hmm. or as little as, uh, as you like. He. Okay. So. We were married in 98 and we lived in New York for a while. We went back on the West Coast. Uh, we had two kids by this point. And so fast forward all the way to 2015. So this is now six years ago right now. We we're dealing with all this. Um, everything was perfectly normal. We had an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old, a dog, a cat. We each had a job. We had a house. We had busy lives of elementary school kids, right? Mm-hmm. So on a, it was a Friday. I, you know, running around, drop off my son for a Boy Scout camp for the weekend, come back with my daughter, walk in the house. He had arrived home from work. He's sitting on the couch, kind of a funny look on his face. And I'm like, "Mm, what's going on? Like, it actually looked to me like he was maybe upset about something. Something had gone wrong in the day or something. So I was like, hey, what's, you know, what's going on? Well, I've been feeling a little bit dizzy lately, he says. That's kind of weird, but okay, dizzy. I mean, a little dizzy, right? Who's not a little something from time to time? A little off, right? Um, So we had this whole discussion about what he had been noticing. And he said, it's just been a few days, you know. It was a Friday, so, and he wasn't, like, he wasn't passing out. He wasn't having a seizure. We weren't, there wasn't, like, an emergency room kind of situation. And because it was already, you know, after 5 o'clock on a Friday, I was like, well, we can't call his doctor till Monday. But fine, call the doctor Monday. This felt like the responsible thing to do, right? Call the doctor, go in and get it checked out. So he calls and, you know, when you call and you say, well, I've been feeling a little dizzy and my wife says I may be forgetting a few things. Like, it doesn't really seem like an emergency, you know? So the doctor says, oh yeah, they set this appointment like three weeks out, right? But I should back up and say to Friday, after we had this whole discussion about the game plan, I went out to get some food, take out, we were going to crash, Right. I go out, I come back and I'm like, how you doing? How you feeling? Right. Like totally like can do like take charge of the situation. Right. So he looks at me and he says, Oh, you know, I, I'm fine. But you know, I've been, I've been feeling a little dizzy lately. And I looked at him and I'm thinking, whoa, like what, what, you know? And I looked at him and I said, well, you know what? You just told me that. And he said, I did said, yeah, we were just sitting over there on the couch, the whole discussion. I said this, you said this, blah, blah, blah. I went and got food. Here I am. And he said, really? So then I'm like, whoa, what is going on here? Right? Like this is just, and he wasn't pulling my leg, right? Right. 
But then, but then he was perfectly normal again. Well, up to that point, had there been anything that you noticed that was odd? I had not. No. Um, Although actually in hindsight, um, he was having a little bit of, of urinary trouble and he had, he had gotten put on a medication for that. Um, I, I don't know, but I wonder if maybe the tumor now in hindsight was affecting some part of the brain that was like pressing on something that was causing a blockage. I don't know exactly. Right. I mean, but because he was on this medicine that was, a, he had just started taking it a few weeks before um, I ended up calling up the doctor. Well, I should say I observed him over the next you know week or so because he was mostly fine. He was going to work. He was taking the kids to school, but then he'd say something that was a little weird. But, and the, but then I'm like, and when I say weird, I mean, like maybe seeming like he didn't quite understand something that he should have or was a little confused by something that he shouldn't have been confused by. But I, but then I'm thinking, am I reading too much into this? Am I overreacting? Like, am I, you know, am I hypersensitive to any little weird, subtle thing that's not really a thing, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I'm watching him. And um, meanwhile, I'm like Googling side effects of whatever this medicine was, right? And you know, when you look at side effects lists, there's like the list of common side effects and then the list of uncommon side effects and then the list of super duper rare side effects that really nobody ever has but somebody could have and sometimes does right so on the list of super duper rare side effects was cognitive confusion so i was convinced okay he's the one in however many million who's like i got something on the rare list and it's cognitive confusion so we're gonna go into the doctor meantime i called up the doctor and i was like hey i know he's got this appointment you know now two weeks away or whatever but i let me tell you what's going on this we can't wait that long and so they said yeah bring him in today i was convinced we were going to go in and say oh all these crazy things are happening isn't that weird oh it must be a side effect of the medicine take him off or switch it or whatever ha 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 it's all fine right well the doctor now this is primary care right this is just regular old doctor he says let's get an mri of your brain so we go downstairs to the MRI department and they did their normal thing. You know, I sit in the waiting room, they take him back. Oh, he'll be back in an hour and then we'll call you in 72 hours, whatever. Right. Well, when she brings him back out at the end of the hour, she says to us, ah, actually, why don't you go back upstairs? The doctor wants to see you now. I keep in mind, this was, you know, after 5 p.m. and not the normal plan of how they do things. And she's sending us back upstairs. So I'm like, I don't know what's, what this is, but that, that this is not a good thing, right? So the doctor, again, primary care, doesn't deal with this stuff all the time, says, there's something really wrong with your brain. I don't know what it is. I don't want to scare you. It might be glioblastoma. Meanwhile, I'm like, glioblastoma, what is that? Like, I never heard the word glioblastoma, right? It might be glioblastoma. You need to go see the neurosurgeon tomorrow tomorrow like who goes to see a fancy specialist you know the very next day right i've seen specialists for knee surgery and wrist surgery and you call and you go in in a month or something right because they're busy yeah so um so he says you need to see the neurosurgeon tomorrow so we go into the neurosurgeon the next day the neurosurgeon meanwhile did you google everything did you google yeah yeah of course which so and so for listeners it's a very aggressive form of brain cancer um, there are four grades of, so there's like grade one, two, three, and four of this type of tumor called a glioma. And when it gets to grade four, they rename it glioblastoma, which mm. is basically, um, in 
in brain cancer in other types of cancer like breast cancer or something um the stages are based on how far it has or hasn't spread within your body but in in brain cancer it's a little bit different and the four grades are based on how aggressively the tumor is growing so a grade one tumor would be very slow growing it's there and obviously that's not a good thing right and it's growing slowly and so grade four is the fastest and this glioblastoma is very very aggressive and and the the five-year survival rate is in the single digits Mm. so that is not a good thing no right and the other thing is they don't seem to know how anybody gets glioblastoma and it has they can't like trace it to any particular kind of feels random you know yeah you know you, you you know boom you have it you know i mean there must be something that science right. hasn't figured out yet you're but... doing all the right things you're exercising eating right taking yeah. the vitamins and then boom. right yeah. and it just and random stuff feels scary too you're right you know because it's like well i don't know i feel like i'm healthy but you know it felt like he was healthy and all of a sudden boom he has a brain tumor with a single digit survival rate cancer you know just like that like her whole life just changed like in an instant Um, so the neurosurgeon looks at all this stuff and says, yeah, we're doing brain surgery the following day. So, yeah. Mm. Um, so that was the start of eight months of hell, basically. I mean, first it was all these surgeries and inpatient stays and ER visits and, you know, uh, medical providers of various sorts doing various things and complications. There was a whole bunch of complications with, you know, he had surgery. They, they um, were supposed to try to remove as much as they could, but all they could get was a biopsy because um, these types of tumors, at least his, it it's not like a discrete lump that you can cut around and remove. It's more like cells that are just kind of weaving through all the fabric of the mm-hmm. brain. So you can't really take that out, you know, surgically. Um. So they got a biopsy and they said, because at first we just knew it was a tumor. A tumor could be all kinds of things, some worse than others. Not, you don't want a tumor at all in your brain. Um, some of them are harder to deal with than others. So we found out anyway that it was cancer and it was this terrible type. And, um, but then, you know, he had his head cut into, so then it didn't heal up properly and it got infected he had, um, you know, cerebral spinal fluid leaking out, sometimes actually squirting out of hmm. his head. Now, listeners can't see. I'm like doing squirt motions out of my yes, head here on motions. the camera. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it was terrible. And every time it happened, it's like, OK, we have to go to the ER. And I had to take him to the one downtown because that's where the oncologists were. And that's where all the people were, because more often than not, he had to be admitted um, you know, so he needed to be there where they had his specialists who could just walk over from the office tower and do whatever they needed to do. You know, um, it was a yeah. big deal. There was one week when we were in the ER, I think four times in the same week. Wow. Um, so overnight things. you were basically overnight, you were basically a caregiver Yeah. like put into that or you were in that role. Yes. And instantly a single parent in effect. Mm hmm. Um, but yeah, instantly a caregiver for my incredibly ill and terminally ill husband. And, 
you know, and one of the reasons I say that I was an instantly a single parent is that he, because, so this brain cancer affects different people differently, depending on where it's, where it is in the brain, what it's touching, what it's affecting, right? So in his case, he had a lot of cognitive impacts. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, that showed up in memory issues and confusion issues and understanding orientation, you know, all kinds of things like, like um, telling the doctor, you know, we stop in for one of these visits and the doctor says, how's it going? And he's like, oh, yeah, pretty good. I, I played lacrosse yesterday. And I'm like, what? He never played lacrosse in his life, much less that week. Right. <laughs> like, oh, wow. But he was confused. Right. right. Mm-hmm. And so and so he wasn't, you know, with the kids, he, you know, he could they could spend time together in the form of like watching TV in the same room, you know, maybe eating lunch together while watching something. Right. Right. But, but he wasn't, you know, doing anything that might be a parental role either in terms of logistics or in terms of, you know, responsibility or decision-making or any, you know, any of those kinds of, right. He's not um, driving the kids to scouts or certainly not driving. No, but also not like, it's not like I could have, you know, when you have two parents and something comes up, that's good or bad, you might problem solve with your spouse or talk about it or, you know, come up with some brainstorm solutions, whatever it is. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, when they're dead, you can't do that. But of course, when in his case, it's not like, okay, he wasn't driving, but he was fully competent. So I could say, well, hey, let's talk about this issue. There was no, let's talk about it. I was instantly all on me. Right. Um, and I, you know, and I had, so now I had two kids and a husband who needed more care, frankly, than the kids did because he had a medication regimen, you know, that I was in charge of, of managing, including several months at the end, giving me, giving him a shot. Mm-hmm. in the abdomen every night um you know all these skills i never thought i would <laughs> yeah uh, you know at one point he was on a on an iv um well multiple points he was on an iv but at one time one point he got sent home with the iv so i had to go into the hospital to get the training about how to change out the iv every every 12 hours or something you know and with the tubing and the whatever's and all the stuff right and so that was a lot of, of care, but also like logistics to like set the timers and remember, okay, I need to mm-hmm. change it at 7am and 7pm or whatever time it was. And, you know, give these med- different medicines at these five different times a day and, you know, manage all these other things, right. There was a lot of nursing. Yeah. You became a nurse. I, I in your book, um, you in future widow, uh, I recall you saying how you wanted, you went back to school to, or you started taking classes, prereqs in order to become a nurse or you well, wanted to be a nurse. I was thinking about it. Yeah. yeah. And this was when the kids were small. So mm-hmm. this was like, uh, well, a bunch of years before this whole ordeal, five yeah. or no, eight, eight years before all this. Yeah. Um, I, I worked for 20 years in it. Um, ultimately 20 years at that point had been, been less. And I was, I wanted to make a change and I wasn't really sure what too, and I wanted to do something that was more felt like I was more um, directly involved in, you know, helping people something that would feel meaningful instead of corporate IT work, which is very corporate and very IT. Not, yeah, right. <laughs> and, you know, there's a lot of interesting things about IT, where there's a lot of frustrations as well. And I, but I just, you know, I felt like I, I wanted to put my effort and passion into something else right so and we were living in portland at the time and i you know spent all this time googling like 
how do you get into nursing school or, you know, whatever. And I found out that I need, I had some prereqs because I, at that point I had a bachelor's and a master's degree, which was helpful, but most of the classes I had in undergrad had nothing to do with any prereqs that might be required for nursing school. In fact, probably none of them other than just general education requirements, right? Like, um, so I, anyway, long story short, I went to, I found one of the prereqs was to take psych 101. And I went to Portland Community College and enrolled in Psych 101. And it was awesome. I loved it. It was so interesting. And of course, I was there and I was probably 35 years old, maybe, with mostly younger students, you know, 10 or more years younger than me. And most of them were in the class probably because it had to be. But And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is so interesting. I love this class. (laughs) But I ultimately decided that... um, you know, it was actually like I, I was able to make time to go every Wednesday to this class, but I had a lot harder time making time to study at home or do whatever assignments or stuff that had to be done outside of class. And I thought, you know, I just don't know if I can, if going back to school and switching to something right now is, you know, is, mm-hmm. is going to work. But um, yeah, you're right. I was interested. Yeah. In that so you, yeah. You ended up getting kind of a, a nursing education <laughs> or kind of. I don't know, in a, in a really messed up way, <laughs> um, you became a, a nurse. Well, and the interesting part about that is, you know, I had to learn a lot to be a good advocate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some people said to me early on, oh, you'll have to be a good advocate. And I'm like, what does that mean? Like, what, like, why won't this just work? Like, all these people are professionals, and they should have good procedures. And, you know, like, he's got a good team of doctors, like, what do I need to advocate for? They'll, they'll take care of him. Right. Well, I found out, you know, there was a lot of stuff, even if it was just like showing up at the emergency room for the millionth time. And he's got a chart in the computer that's like a million screens long. Right. So the ER doctor who happens to be working that night is, hasn't read his whole chart, of course. And so knowing enough to summarize, you know, the key points and the key you know, complications and medications and, and the key, you know, concerns that the neurosurgeon is watching out for whatever, you know, relevant situation kind of stuff, um, that kind of thing, but also, and and learning the language too, right. There's a lot of acronyms and, and in fact, (laughs) there was, there was an acronym that I didn't know and it's called NPO and it's some like Latin nerd. I don't even know what it stands for, but it means nothing by mouth. So don't eat anything. Yeah. You're supposed to be fasting. Oh, okay. And so of course I'm familiar from having had my own, you know, I just had wrist surgery a few years before that. And I, I had forgotten, I guess, but I know that before you have surgery, you're not supposed to eat because they need to put anesthesia and do stuff. And they don't want you to have, they want you to have an empty stomach. Well, he was due for another surgery this particular day and he was inpatient in the hospital. And so whatever time we were supposed to show up, I, you know, I drove over to the hospital, walked into his room. There was a sign on the door, NPO, which I walked right past, didn't even see it, didn't even register, visiting with him in his room for a little bit before it was time to take him in the wheelchair downstairs to the surgery area. And there was a cookie, I think it was on his nightstand. And he wanted to have the cookie and I'm like, great. Right. Like that sounds like a nice yeah, idea. Have eat a the cookie. cookie. <laughs> right. Especially cause you know, it's in the hospital and all this terrible stuff and you're, you know, and he wants to order lunch or whatever. And you're like, can I, you know, he wants to have the dessert. I'm like, great, get dessert. Great. You know, you want, you want this great. You know? <laughs> um, so, you know, wanting to have a little enjoyment, he wants the cookie. I'm like, great, have the cookie. Right. 
not even thinking that first of all, just using my logic and thinking he shouldn't be eating because he's about to have surgery. And secondly, not noticing the sign on the door that said NPO because it didn't mean anything to me at that point. Never heard the word. Nobody explained it to me. Nope. Right. Which is one of those terms. I think the nurses put it there for themselves, like so that whoever was in and out of his room didn't accidentally give him food. Right. Or the, or the, the food, the staff who would be bringing food around the floor or whatever, like didn't give him food. So anyway, he, he went, we went down for the surgery. They take him off, you know, we sit in the, we get settled in the waiting room, my family and me, a bunch of people waiting, right. Expecting the neurosurgeon who we we're getting to know pretty well by this point to come back, you know, a couple hours later to report on the surgery. Well, he comes back 10 minutes later and he says, Dennis said he thinks he had a cookie. Could that be true? Oh. And I was like, oh my gosh. Oh. Yes, that's true. <laughs> but I, you know, I don't know how he remembered that. Right. Dennis, right? Because he didn't remember stuff. The it, it, short-term memory was a, you know, was a problem. And I I mean, I guess they they would have proceeded with the surgery if he hadn't, you know, I'm sure they were chit-chatting with him ahead of time. And you know, they have their standard questions. So have you had any food? And oh yeah, I had a cookie. You know, so yeah. I added that term to my list of, you know, medical terms to learn so I can make sure that I'm doing a good job in my role as caregiver. Now I know what NPO means. Yeah. And everybody knows what NPO means now. I do. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. But stuff like that. Right. Like yeah. learning to advocate as the caregiver. You know, there was a time when he was home and he was having because of the infections. And so, by the way, cerebral spinal fluid is called that because it's, it's the fluid in your brain. But it goes, travels down your spinal cord, right? It travels up and down. It's kind of a connected system. So because this CSF it's called was infected, it was traveling down his spine and making his abdomen very painful. Mm. Um, so anyway, he was having all this pain and getting him out of bed or, you know, not even out of bed, but like, you know, from a lying position to a sitting up position and then from a sitting up position to a standing up position, he, he couldn't really do it because it was so, he had so much pain. So there, there I am using my muscles in place of his lifting and pulling him to sitting and to standing. Well, you know, this happens a couple of times and I'm like, I, 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 you know, I'm a fairly strong person and I'm not, not too old, you know, well, I'm not 20 anymore, but you know, I should be able to do this, but man, we, and I could, I did do it a few times. Right. But I realized, I was like, I, if I keep doing this, I'm going to hurt myself or I'm just going to exhaust myself or something. Yeah. And so, and so this is where the advocacy comes in. I called the, um, the insurance company had given us a, a, like a nurse case manager kind of person who was my point person for anything with the insurance company, which was very nice because I didn't have to call some just, you know, general line or whatever. Like, I think because he was a very expensive and complicated case, they put someone on the case, right? So I called her and I was like, look, I need a hospital bed at the house. I can't, I cannot do this. And she said, let me see what I can do. And there was a hospital bed there like the next day. And then I was like, whoa. And what I learned from that was I, I could ask and I had to ask yeah. until I asked, nobody was like, oh, gee, he's at home. Do you think you'd like a hospital bed? Yeah. Right. They, they, I don't know if it didn't occur to them or it's not in their process or they don't want to spend money on things they don't, you know. But when I put my foot down and said, I, I can't do this, I need the bed, then it happened. Yeah. 
I mean, you were, you didn't know to be, you would never in that position before. So you wouldn't know to ask. Right. And we always kind of assume um, that doctors and nurses and we put a lot of faith in them and, and that's great, but they, that, that they know every, you know, little bit and every detail about what's going on and they don't, you know, so that sounds exhausting. It was exhausting (laughs) and it was eight months of it, you know, were you working in it still? I was, and I should say, yes, that my, my managers were incredibly supportive and there was a whole period of time, mostly over that, that first summer portion where they were basically like, Hey, take the time you need. Don't worry too much about us. You know, I did a few things each week. Um, you know, when I could fit them in, not not calling into meetings at any scheduled times or anything. It was a few kind of stuff I had to do in the background that it was frankly easier for me to just handle it than to like take the time to show it to somebody else. Yeah. Um, and then when I did start working, it was probably around like after when the kids started back in school in, in September, um, I started back to work. And but it was super flexible. And I but I should say I had been working from home at that point already for 10 years or something. And I was still doing that. So, you know, I was able to, I had tremendous, like, you know, friends um, or other you know, family members who would come and take turns hanging out with him, like in the mornings, maybe fixing some breakfast and watching some TV and hanging out while I was still in the house, but able to get some work done. Um, but then, you know, like if the hospice nurse came by, I was already there. I could jump up and talk to her about whatever medications needed to be reordered or, you know, all, all the stuff that, um, has to get handled. So, yeah, so I was still working, um, and they were incredibly supportive and flexible. And without that, I, I'm, I don't know what I would have done. I mean, that yeah. was, that was a lifesaver really. Yeah. I got to ask. So, um, cause self-care is huge for, mm-hmm. um, what I'm doing and, and just, I think I, everybody should put themselves first. I know it's kind of a, it's a hard concept, especially with kids, but during that time and after Dennis's death, did you have any particular practices or where you were like, I need to just get away and do something nice for myself? Was there anything like that that comes to mind? Well, you know, that was a tricky, a tricky thing because for those eight months, like I couldn't leave the house unless I specifically made arrangements for someone else to be at the house. Right. Like, like he couldn't be home by himself. He might, you know, it could be an issue of like walking out of the house and getting lost Mm -hmm. or, you know, all kinds of things. Right. So, so I had to, like, there was one point where I was like, I've never, never really been a runner, but I was like, I feel like if I tried to do some running or something, like maybe that would help me, even if I just took 30 minutes. And so then I called some people to be like, you know, can you come over for 30 minutes on Thursday so I can go for a run and somebody can sit here with them, like that kind of thing. Um, But, you know, a lot of, during, so your question was about during those eight months, mm-hmm. um, a lot of my self-care will be like in the late night hours after everybody in the house was quiet. You know, I got him to sleep in the hospital bed in the downstairs family room, got the kids to sleep, you know, the dog has settled down and then I might do one of several things. Um, one was picking up my guitar. Oh, um which i it's kind of funny i had always wanted to learn the guitar 
because in my family there's a long history of of family get-togethers and and my aunt's playing the guitar and I always wanted to learn and I finally learned it a few years before Dennis got sick which is kind of incredible because I spent like 30 years saying someday I'm gonna learn and I finally picked it up now I should say I'm much more enthusiastic than I am skilled so (laughs) I'm not claiming this is any fine music but in terms of an opportunity to sit down, the house is quiet. It might be midnight. It might be later than that. Who knows, right? And pull out my guitar and practice some songs, you know, mess around with, I had to like a repertoire, mm-hmm. right? Like, and so there were a few, um, the Beatles song, Let It Be. Oh yeah, beautiful. Um, yeah, it was one that I played kind of for myself um and and then there were some other songs and some of it was just playing the songs that I knew and wanted to I don't know just there's something sort of contemplative about sitting there and messing around with the guitar in the middle of the night when everybody's asleep you know even though I had on you know the baby monitor onto onto the room where he was in case he woke up so I could hear if I needed to go right check on something still so there's that part and then the other part well the second part really was was having friends come um, and talk, you know, either in, you know, small groups or, or a little bit bigger groups, you know, just a few friends or whatever. They all had to come to my house because I couldn't go anywhere. Right. But um, sometimes they'd come after everybody was in bed and, you know, and just that chance to kind of reflect, um, you know, that way. But then the other thing was, is, was really writing, um, which became the starting point of the book, really. Uh, it's funny because when, well, you listeners might have heard of of, of Caring Bridge. Um, it's yeah, online. tell me. Yeah, tell us about Caring Bridge. I haven't yeah, heard yeah. Of that. So it is a, it's basically like a free blog for medical crises is the shortest way to say it. So a lot of times if there's some kind of crisis and someone is, you know, in the hospital or there's a terrible accident and, you know, people want to be able to communicate out to the loved ones and the friends like a status, and you, but you don't want to call everybody or text everybody, you know, kind of to update people, you can quickly and easily at caringbridge, probably .org, I think, um, create a, a, a free site on there and you can put a password on it or not, you know, so the people who you know, can't look at it unless they have a password or you can leave that off. Um, but and it's, it's free and it's quick. So you just go on, boom, and then you have a spot where you can share updates. And so sometimes people will, you know, have a family member giving updates, you know, on their behalf or different things. And I had heard about it because I'd had some other people in the community, um, you know, when someone had died or had surgery or things who used that as a way to do updates. And my sister said early on, hey, why don't you create a caring bridge? And I was like, no, I don't want to do that. Like, <laughs> I'll just, I'll just, you know, text some updates around to people. And, you know, by the time I did a few copy paste texts, I was like, okay, this is, this is unwieldy. Like, right. I, can't, I can't keep, and this is going to be a long road. Right. Like I can't keep updating people one on one or small, you know, copy paste over and over again. And we had a lot of people who who wanted to support us and and follow along, which was incredible. And I wanted to keep them updated and fill people in on what was going on. So um, my sisters, I said, fine, you can create it. Right. So she created it. She did the first post, which was like from the first surgery, like he's out of surgery and, you know, he's eating or something very matter of fact. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I took it over because it was important to me, first of all, for me to be the one sharing with our people, um, 
you know, sharing, sharing the, you know, what, what was being said, but also like showing appreciation directly from me, you know, for all the people who are supporting that kind of thing. Um, and what I didn't realize was if you look back, you know, the first posts for me even are very, are still matter of fact, right? He's eating, maybe he'll come home tomorrow, physical therapy came today, whatever, right? But as time went on, and this gets into the self-care thing, which you asked about a long time ago by mm -hmm. now, and I will get to the point, <laughs> no. That's cool. um, is that I didn't realize how much of a vehicle it would become for me to reflect and to process and, and to share. And as time went on, I mean, eight months is a long time, right? And so I would be driving over to the hospital and thinking, or I'd be walking and thinking or whatever I was doing and like turning over ideas in my head of like, here's what's going on. I feel like it's time for an update. What do I want to say about it? What, what were the kind of the reflections around this or what's the more than just kind of the factual stuff? Like how does this become some kind of meaningful post? And, and part of that, you know, I think the process of thinking through these, what I wanted to write was also a process of anticipatory grief, which is a mm -hmm. word I didn't know then, right? But this process of starting to work out some of this grief stuff when, when you know, in this case, I knew this was not going to end well. Right. I didn't know how long it would be. But, um, you know, early on, I asked the, the, the oncologist, like, you know, life expectancy, and she said, well, I can't tell you what it's going to be in his particular case, but the average is 13 months. And he just had so many complications and so much confusion that just my gut feeling was it wouldn't be that long. Um, but it could have been that long. In fact, I have another friend who whose husband died of glioblastoma, but he he was sick for like two years. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's 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 very variable. And so the variable here was how long is this going to last and how long, how's it going to go, you know, and, and, and for how long Yeah. the variable wasn't, is he going to make it, you know? Yeah. Um, so processing to, to, to the earlier point about writing and self-care, like having that as an outlet and a vehicle to be thinking through writing you know, I like to like thinking about things to try to get them on paper or in this case on the keyboard um, to me helps me like, crystallize my thinking or, you know, process or organize my thinking on things. Mm -hmm. All right. So walking around every day, taking care of medicines and, and doctors calls and this and this and this and the whole list of things. And in between, you know, whenever I had like, like spare brain cycles, you know, thinking about what am I going right. to post next? Right. And then maybe staying up late after everybody's in bed and be like, okay, now I could sit down with a laptop. And now all these strands of start, you know, pieces of thoughts I've had throughout the day that have started to coalesce, I can try to get it into some kind of cohesive piece of, of reflection to share or through CaringBridge out to the, you know, the people who were, who were supporting us and following along. And, you know, they, I, People seem to appreciate the updates um, and people were very encouraging and super supportive. And one of the things I was also trying to do through that was like reflect back the things that people were doing that were helpful. Like, 
because one of the things that that I think you see in this kind of case when you're on the receiving side of you know people wanting to help and support you, you learn like some people really get it and they're comfortable talking about this and some people are freaked out about it and some people don't know what to say or they you know all these things right you see the whole gamut of responses right and and there were a lot of people lucky for me who seemed to be very comfortable and you know jumping in doing this or that that was helpful and you know whether logistically or emotionally or you know everything yeah and so i try to reflect back you know these this tremendous support in this or this way as way of you know teaching through the example that these people were setting right and it wasn't like if someone gets sick you should do this and you shouldn't do that but it was like let me tell the story of how they're helping us as a way of holding up an example that hopefully will help people feel more comfortable both interacting with us and you know interacting with other people in the future who who are grieving or in some kind of crisis or problem um which now you know we didn't know back then we'd have covid there are a lot more people that are dealing with grief of various you know causes and things going on right now right i mean there's a grief is such a bigger topic now right um, mm-hmm. As you and I know, it's right. always been a topic for a long time for, for a smaller set of people. Now right. grief is a national topic, mm-hmm. right? So um, I think learning to be a good ally of grieving people yeah. is, you know, is an important um, element. And I felt like I had an opportunity, like I said, by trying to hold up some of these examples to kind of teach through those examples. Yeah. Yeah. So after Dennis died, eight months after his diagnosis, you had these journals through Cambridge that you um, were keeping. And at what point did something go off in your mind that I want to, I want to publish these, or I want to create a book mm. around these? How long was that? You know, I don't think I had the idea right away. I, you know, as soon as, as soon after he died and we had the funeral and then it was like this big letdown. Not, I mean, that's the wrong word, but like in terms of like the intensity level and the activity level and the always on of like the mm-hmm. last eight months had been like, go, go, go. Right. And then it was like, oh, we need to breathe here. Right. So speaking of self-care, some of that was cyclical too. Right. Like, right. like I really could start doing that. Not to say, I mean, like I said, I found opportunities for it before, but it, there was some cyclical nature where I could then dig into that more and um at some point i was like you know i've got fifteen thousand words of writing here in these eight months worth of posts and people had told me oh you know you're a good writer and oh you were really helping us through your writing show you know show how to care for somebody you know all these things right I like, oh, I feel like there's the start of a book there, but I don't know how does 15,000 words of journal entries become a book? Because it wasn't a book, but it was like the start of something. It felt like the backbone or like, a, like an organizing principle for, for the story. And one of the things I want to do is give a kind of a behind the scenes look, like here's an account of a family, a family with you know, two grade school age kids who's going through terminal illness, terminal cancer, hospice, the medical system, you know, all these things. I feel like there's 
something to share here. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure who it helps. And I'm not sure how I frame this. I'm not sure. Because right? one thing I, I knew from the beginning was I, it couldn't be like, you know, this happened, this happened, this happened, the end. Yeah. Right. Because that's not really a, a book. Uh, how, but I've never written a book before. Right? So I'm like, how do I? So I didn't do much with the book idea for a while. I actually started the podcast. And so that I started it in the fall of 2018. Um, and I actually started it in November, which is Children's Grief Awareness Month every year in November. Um, so it's coming up again here soon. I was trying to figure out, I, I felt lost and alone as a widowed parent. Like, how, how, what do I need to know? What do I do? How do I do this? Uh, who can even help me? Like, went to Amazon and I typed in, I don't know what I typed in, but like, how to be a widowed parent or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> Didn't find the answer. Because there's so many books on it. (laughs) I know, right? I'm like, well, Amazon doesn't have the answer for me. So now what do I do, right? But I was reading everything I could put my hands on. Um, I went to Camp Widow, which I know you and I have chatted about. Terrific. Um, That was helpful. I was, I found a great therapist, like all these things, right? And I could see that there could be some kind of path forward for me. Not saying that it was easy or, you know, quick or anything like that. But I'm just saying, like, I was finding resources. Right. But I'm like, mm, this parenting piece, like, I, I, I don't know. Where do I go? What do I do? Right. So I somehow I realized that I could start a podcast, interview people and share, you know, learn from them on behalf of my listeners. So stand in the place of my listeners in an interview, just like we're doing here talking to somebody who was an expert on a particular topic or talking to a widowed parent who was farther down the road, who could share things like that. And I could ask questions, you know, kind of in the place of my listeners and, you know, share it out and they could learn through, you know, through this. So that was going on great for a while. Um, I mean, still going along great, but the point is I started, this started merged back together with the book stuff because as I was learning more and more, from my guests on the show and learning more about children's grief and learning more about all the widow stuff. I was like, you know, I wish I had known some of this stuff when, uh, during those eight months, when I was parenting these kids that, you know, were not yet, they hadn't lost their dad yet, but still it's an incredibly stressful time and scary time. And, 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 you know, it's and all the all the stuff right i mean parenting through terminal illness i'm like there's a lot of parallels here you know about about grieving children and pre-grieving children i don't think Mm -hmm. that's a word but you know what i mean right um and so i started realizing like gosh if if i had known this or this or that like during those eight months that sure would have been helpful right right (laughs) and so i ended up then taking the caring bridge journal and using that as kind of the backbone of the story, it's part two. So the book is in three parts. And so part one sets it up. Part two then is each chapter is a journal entry, but then I, I go and I add reflections today. So some of them are like, I really wish I had known, I would have handled this differently if I knew this or that, right? Like I've learned these things about children's grief since then. And this is what I would have, you know, done differently. Some of it was, um, adding in more context about, you know, helping the allies, right? Like mm-hmm. um, fleshing some of those themes out a bit because I wanted that to be a, a, a kind of a layer of the story, right? That it's not just about widowed parents or future widows as the title of the book is. Um, there's that element too. And then I 
oh some of the stuff some of the reflections i added today were like okay there was stuff i wasn't ready to share five years ago so let me share some of this now like and add in you know fill out the story a bit not that i said stuff that was incorrect the first time around i just didn't always like include everything you know in the caring bridge post originally mm-hmm. so um so i so the middle part of the book is is that and i try then through that journey to you know develop the themes and to show the story it's interesting somebody mentioned to me in a memoir there's like character jenny and narrator jenny so like character jenny is the one going to the er and calling the doctor and doing the stuff in the journal entries and then narrator jenny is like me now adding in reflections from you know from the vantage point of of the current day and you're creating the it's like you're creating the guidebook that you didn't have at that time partially yes right for that for that right now it's funny you mentioned that because also on my list is is the widowed parent handbook which is going to be more of a guidebook a more of a so this first book is a memoir oh you've got a second book coming out well well, it's not out yet i don't have a date on it either but it's in the works that's exciting Uh, yeah so (laughs) so the widowed parent handbook is meant to to go along with the widowed parent podcast the kind of companions um to to really be more nonfiction like it's it, that's the book that I couldn't find mm-hmm. on Amazon. That's like, right. I'm a new widowed parent or I'm not so new. Like, how do I do this? What do I need to know? What needs to be on my radar screen? What should I be thinking about? What kinds of resources and supports and blah. Like I yeah. haven't outlined it all yet, but it's, it's, it's in the works. And a lot of the um, podcast interview stuff ends up being research inputs into, mm-hmm. into that. So, but the memoir is a piece of that because mm-hmm. I wanted I didn't want to wait for the second book to put all that in. And so I added in the children's grief stuff into the story. But this book is told more in the context of a story of a memoir. Right. But then it's added this, some of this stuff in. Right. Whereas the second book is just going to truly be a nonfiction book of information. Right. Right. Like resources, all the things that you and I probably Googled and, yeah. <laughs> um, res- you know, up in the middle of the night wondering, is this normal right. kid stuff or is this related to right. our husband's death or, you know, what's right. going on here? And just, right. yeah, it's kind of like, oh, there's like, I'm going to mess the quote up or something, but it's like finding something that breaks your heart and, and fixing it or, you know, trying mm. to fix it, yeah. you know? Um, and so that when you're telling your, your story about, um, your podcast and the book and this new book coming out, that's feels to me, that's what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, with the memoir, I really, you know, I, I felt lost and alone too, in those eight months, what do I do? The, you know, the, the, the kids come to the hospital to see him, but he's confused and doesn't recognize me. And do I, like, which is a new thing. Do I let them come up or do I not let them come up? And how do I handle this? Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. all this stuff, right. That I'm like, God, I wish I had somebody. So I, w- I really wanted to bring those elements into, into the memoir. And the third part of the book is, is after he dies, then what? Mm-hmm. Right. And one of the things I really struggled with is where does the book end? Right. Like it's, fairly obvious where it starts i mean the opening scene is the thing i told you about in the beginning where he says i'm feeling a little dizzy lately right that started the whole deal Mm -hmm. right and then it goes through and you know chronologically and there's all these problems and then he dies okay but does the book end when he dies or does the book end 
you know, today, whatever today is, I guess the mm-hmm. day I was writing it. Well, I didn't write it in one day, but you know what I mean? Right. The, the present day of whatever time period when I was writing it. Or does it end at some other arbitrary point in between there? Like where, where, where does the book end? Where does the story end? How do you know where to end a, a book and a story? And I, I really felt strongly that it didn't end when he died because that's not the end of my story. He died and three of us are still here and three of us are, are going forward and are, are, you know, need to figure out, okay, now what? Right. And you are the future widow. I mean, that is, yeah, that is your book. Yeah. Right. And so, and so the, um, the book couldn't end when he died because Mm -hmm. there's more to, to the story. So that's the, that's the third part of the book. Yeah. What's it's, it's an amazing book. It's a must, it's a must read for any widow or or widowed parent for sure. Thank you. And thank you for putting it in your August um, boxes. I'm very excited that people, and so people listening might know that in your, your August filled with gold box, where you always put special items in there. And I think you usually have a book or you often have a book. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so future widows in the August box. So if you're listening and you got Melissa's August box, I would love to hear what you thought about the book. I love to hear from listeners, you know, what resonates or what was helpful, um, you know, write to me or whatever, because it's, it's great to hear from, from readers. uh, Yeah. I like, I like to feature a memoir or some kind of a guidebook written by widows because there just wasn't anything like that. Yeah, you know, yeah. ten years. I just, or if there was, it was hard to find. So yeah. I'm really, really yeah. happy that uh, I was able to feature your book, Future Widow. So if you had, you know, what would you say to somebody who a widowed parent who was struggling, and they're like, Jenny, tell me what to do. How can I? How can I move through this? Like, <sighs> what would you say to them? You know, that's a really hard question to answer because it's yeah. a, it depends kind of question, right? There's right. so many, somebody asked me a question by email today and I'm like, well, the answer is it depends. And I could write yeah. a you know, dissertation on all the, you know, I, I think that, you know, if I could say one piece of advice or something to do, it would be try to get connected with a grief center, grief program in your community, because I think that will then will be the first step of all kinds of other resources and opportunities and assistance and and you know one of the really good things about getting connected with grief groups and I'm talking about something like well for example you're in Oregon the Dougie Mm -hmm. Center is in Portland Mm -hmm. and they have and many other groups like them they have groups for kids of different ages groups for teenagers young adults parents sometimes for other adults um and they by the way even though they're in Oregon they have a a a lookup tool on their website um, where you can you can be in any community in the U.S. and some outside the U.S. too, mm-hmm. and you can search and find something like them in your own local community. So, you know, connecting with somebody like that, between the fact that, um, first of all, I think it really helps people feel less alone. A lot of widowed parents who have grade school kids and high school kids, they don't know anybody else in their community, in their kids' school, in their neighborhood who is in their situation. If they know other widowed people, they probably are older and have grown kids. There might be other single parents in their community through divorce, which is um, a different situation, right? right? Different challenges, you know? And so I think that when you connect with a group like this and you feel less alone because you're, you, you have that connection, I think that's 
a good start on a lot of things. And then, you know, these groups, you, the centers usually have therapists or social workers or grief experts or people who are, you know, having some kind of topic help for lack of a better word, like, you know, actual, you know, advice on specific questions as, as things come up in your, in your family. And also usually can connect you to other kinds of resources, whether it's, you know, written materials or podcasts or books Mm -hmm. or um, just all kinds of other, you know, there's a lot of websites and good stuff. Um, So I think, you know, if, if, if people wanted to take one first step trying to find something like that, and I would say, you know, for all those people who, you know, if you've got people in your life who are like, let me know if I can do anything to help. You could say, you know what, can you do some research for me? Find me a grief center. Right. And call them up and find out like what days and times their programs are and find out how I sign up and just do all the research for me. And then just tell me what I need to know. (laughs) Yeah. Because people like to know, like, give me a task. Like people, people like to have real specific things to do because they don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. So that's, that's great advice. Excellent advice. We could talk for days. Probably we could. We could. <laughs> One of these days we will. You know, I know you're in Oregon and, and I'm in, in Seattle and and I actually sometimes do get down to the Oregon coast in your mm-hmm. your area there. So next time I am down there, we will get together for sure. And hopefully it will be post COVID, no masks, just a grand old time. Yes, I love it. I love it. Well, it's a it's a date then. Sounds good. <laughs> All a right. non-specific date. Yes. <laughs> a non-specific date, but a date nonetheless. <laughs> Sounds good. I love All it. All right. Well, thanks, Jenny. I appreciate it. Thank you, Melissa. It's been great speaking with you. And thank you, Filled with Gold Widow podcast listeners. If you'd like to hear more conversations about all things Widow, please leave a review, subscribe, or share this podcast with others. We'll see you next Thursday. Take care of yourself in the meantime. Thanks for joining us this week on the Filled with Gold Widow podcast. This show is made possible by our company, Filled with Gold Self-Care Subscription Boxes for Widows. It's a box specifically created to support you with self-care in mind. Each box is filled with self-care products and resources to encourage you to deeply care for yourself during this time when you are rebuilding your life. You can find out more about the Filled with Gold subscription box at filledwithgold.org. And if you want a free widow self-care support guide to help you on this journey, head on over to filledwithgold.org and subscribe to our email list to have it delivered right to your inbox. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode. This is Melissa Pierce, and from my heart to yours, take care of yourself.